chapter 11. All right, let's pray. We'll get started. Lord, just excited to see what you have in store for tonight. And as we learn about this, help it not just to be knowledge, but Lord, to be knowledge with zeal, to know how to apply this to our lives, to truly live it in all we do and say, um, and to let it impact us, to go impact others. Thank you once again for those that could come out tonight. I know there's a lot that couldn't with the weather and the cold. Be with them, bless them. And also, Lord, the sickness going around. Pray your hand of health to be upon all us always in your name. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 11. Tonight we get to talk about these guys, the two witnesses here. We're in the first half of the tribulation period. Now, we've said this many times in our study through the book of Revelation. Anytime you see judgment, you will always see grace and mercy because God in the midst of that judgment will stop and proclaim the truth of the gospel as well. And what you've got to remember as you go through the book of Revelation, there's these little pauses, these little parentheses, if you will. And we're in one of those right now. In Revelation 9, we had some pretty tough stuff there. In Revelation 8, was some pretty tough stuff with the trumpet judgments. Well, here we see now in Revelation 11, while these things are going on, we also have this little bit of a break where there's also witnessing going on, and it's through these two witnesses that that is happening. So that's what we're going to talk in here tonight. But before we can get into the two witnesses, we have to talk about this, verse 1 of Revelation 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, that 1,260 days, 42 months, that's the same thing. You can see that right here. This is that first half that we're talking about here of the tribulation. You've got to remember, in biblical standards, a year is 360 days, not 365 like we have. So what's going on? First off, you see a temple. Now, there's some people that look at this and they say it's symbolic. I don't believe it's symbolic. The reason I don't believe it's symbolic is because there needs to be an actual temple that causes some issues and causes some problems. In 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist goes into this temple, and what he does there is he ruins the sacrifices. So to me, there's literally something going on. In Daniel 9.27, it says the Antichrist brings an end to the sacrifice and the offerings. So if it's symbolic, if it's spiritual, I have a hard time seeing that. I think this is a literal, physical temple that is going to be built. And this literal, physical temple will be built, and the Antichrist will go in, I believe, scripturally speaking, into the most holy place of it, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's presence dwelled in the Old Testament, and he will offer up sacrifices there to himself. And so this temple is something that is going to be a fulfilled prophecy that we're going to see. You already see little hints of it happening here and there. If you follow anything, you know that there is a push by some Jews over there to get this idea of this temple being put up. And the Antichrist will go in and set himself up as God. Now, it's really kind of interesting. You know, a couple months ago, we had a uh, uh, guy from Chosen People Ministries come out, Ephraim, and he came and talked about the gospel going out to the Jews. He's actually a pastor over in Israel. And Rich and I went out for breakfast with him the next day. And one of the things I asked him was, How's, what about this temple thing? And he says, the majority of the Jews do not care about it in any way whatsoever. They are secular. They don't care about it. It's not important to them. He goes, but there's a very passionate minority that wants it. And he goes, in fact, he goes, what I almost see is more Christians excited about it than Jews because Christians understand the prophecy involved with it. 
And so you can get online, and it is fascinating. There is a very passionate group of Jews over there that have started uh, designing the clothes for the priests. They have made the artifacts that are needed for the temple, and they have schools going on that they are training the people to be priests. They're, they're putting this into practice. Now, so this temple looks like it's going to be rebuilt, but there's a problem with this. Can you go to that next slide real quick, Dustin, that I gave you there? If anybody's ever studied out Israel and Jerusalem, they know that there's a problem that's going on where the temple is actually going to be rebuilt. And I just want to put a couple pictures up here for you to kind of let you see this. Now, anybody knows this. This is the Dome of the Rock, and this is the holiest site in the Muslim faith. Holiest site in the Muslim faith. This is where they believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven. This is where they believe that Muhammad had some of his visions, etc. And so you have this right here. And this is where the Jews also believe the temple was. They also believe this is where Abraham attempted to sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, the Muslims have this. Go to the next picture real quick, Dustin, just to put this in perspective. There's the Dome of the Rock, and this is what is known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And this is a retaining wall of Herod's temple. So you can see how close they are to each other. Well, the way this works is pretty simple. The Muslims have control over the Dome of the Rock, and the Jews have control over the Western Wailing Wall. Well, the Muslims don't let the Jews go to their area, and the Jews don't let the Muslims go to their area somebody's going to have to come in and fix this problem, right? And that would be the most political move anybody could ever make is to come in and fix this problem. And it kind of looks like the Antichrist, maybe the guy that comes in and fixes this problem, how you have two major world religions that hate each other. One of them vows to kill the Jews, and they're going to find some type of agreement here to have a temple rebuilt in this area. Now, you'll run into some people that say, actually, that this Dome of the Rock is not where the temple should be. It's a little bit farther away. And that's part of it. Maybe they got the location wrong. But for right here, right now, it's hard for us to imagine these two groups of people coming together and allowing this to work out. But there is going to be a temple that is going to be rebuilt. Like I said, Daniel mentions this. Second Thessalonians says the Antichrist goes in and sits at the temple. Daniel 9 says the Antichrist brings an end to the sacrifices of the temple. Real quick reminder of the temple. First temple was built about a thousand years before Christ. That was built by Solomon. That one was destroyed by Babylon about 586 B.C. About 50 years later, they built another temple. We talked about this when we went through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther there. And that was rebuilt, and the prophets Zechariah and Zephaniah dealt with it. That temple was then remodeled by Herod about 20 years before Jesus. And that's the temple that Jesus would have spent his time in. That temple was then destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D. So we've gone now about 2,000 years with the Jews not having a temple. But they have their holy sites. And so what you see here is this retaining wall. That's part of the temple that Herod did 20 years or so before Christ, just to kind of give you a perspective. So something's going to come in where this temple is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be an amazing political coup for this to happen. It looks like the Antichrist may have a role in it. You already see the um, beginnings of it now with people being trained in the artifacts and the clothing. It's fulfilled prophecy happening right in front of us. So this is going to be amazing when this all comes together. Any quick questions, comments about Dome of the Rock, Temple, Wailing Wall, all this kind of coming together here? Because you're going to hear about this stuff on the news. Okay. So we got that foundation laid. Now, what's going to happen with this temple? 
Well, verse 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. It's been given to the Gentiles. Remember when we refer to the Gentiles, we're feeling, referring to these heathen non-believers. And that means for basically 42 months, for half the tribulation, the Gentiles are going to be having some type of power right there. This is where the Antichrist will be revealed. This is where the Antichrist will have this. You see this in Scripture as well. You see this idea of uh, in Revelation 13 that the Antichrist is in power really for that last half of the tribulation. If you can go back to that timeline real quick, Dustin, I would appreciate it. Because what you kind of see here with the Antichrist is you see him building power during the first half of the tribulation. And it's really during the second half of the tribulation that he has that. That's why we put rise of the Antichrist right here. He is building his power, building his kingdom during this first half, which culminates in this event of the abomination of desolation, where he goes into the temple in the middle part of the tribulation, and he sets himself up as God. So putting this all together, we start to see this kind of stuff come together here, and we see this happening. Rue, do note that this temple that we're talking about here in Revelation 11 will be destroyed, and that there's another temple coming. That one is given major detail in Ezekiel 40 through 43, and that's the temple that we will have in the millennial reign. Now, a lot of people struggle with this. In the millennial reign of Christ, for that thousand years, there's going to be a temple set up, and they're going to reinstitute sacrifices. And some people struggle with this, saying, why do we have to have sacrifices? Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. The sacrifices will be a reminder of what Christ did. Just as we take communion now to remember what Jesus did, we do not believe it's the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. We believe it's symbolic of it. When you come to the actual millennial temple that's going to be set up for a thousand years, sacrifices will be happening. Those are not to take away sins. They're symbolic of what Jesus did. Please do remember... Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> Jewish idea here of animal sacrifices. We don't see this. We don't have a part in this. Our thing is communion. But you're going to see this start back up again. So in the millennial reign, there will be another temple again. And it's kind of fascinating to see how this all comes together here. And if you want to study that out, go to Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43. And you will read all the details. All the details on the temple. The size of it, the dimensions, the sacrifices, the staff that's going to take care of it. It's going to be a fascinating, fascinating thing. So, we are reintroduced to the temple. There is a tribulation temple that will be built. That one will be destroyed. And then we'll have another millennial temple. And you see some symbolism going on here. This idea of verse 2, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. The Gentiles, the heathens, the Antichrist will have power there for about half of that tribulation period. Any final questions, comments here? Anything about the temple before we go on? Yes, Mom. The Millennial Temple? I would say the people that go into the Millennial Reign will do it. You know, there's a thousand years that's going to happen. And we, we think of this Millennial Reign of Christ as this um, almost spiritual, supernatural thing. And the truth is the world keeps on going. If you go read about the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is years of cleanup from this battle. It's not like all of a sudden Jesus returns to earth and the earth is put back in this pristine form. Ezekiel talks about cleanup that's going to happen for years. There's going to be rebuilding that's going to happen for years. So the people left after the tribulation, I believe, are the ones that are going to come back in and rebuild the temple that's going to go on with this. Once again, remember, this is a thousand-year reign of Christ. He's not going to rush anything, and so it's going to be the people coming in out of the tribulation that I believe are going to be the ones building it. Anybody else have any other questions? About temple, rebuilt temple, millennial reign, anything like that? Ready? 
Okay, moving on now. What about these two witnesses? Verse 3. I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Once again, half the tribulation. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls on the day of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. All right, let's just break this down and get the facts of this. Time frame, 1,260 days, half the tribulation. Okay, they are called this idea of the two lampstands and olive trees. That comes from Zechariah chapter 4. This idea that they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, lights for the Lord, witnesses for the Lord. That's the symbolism that they have, the oil, the lampstand shining there. What's going to be going on? It's judgment. They're preaching judgment and repentance there. And you see this idea of the idea of judgment with God's judgment in the fire. But you also see repentance. Because this idea of them wearing sackcloth and ashes there in verse 3. Sackcloth is an idea of repentance. Telling people to repent, to change. So as the Antichrist is rising in power during the first half of the tribulation, you got the two witnesses and the 144,000 preaching the gospel. So once again, in the time of judgment... There's grace happening. So imagine this first half of the tribulation, and you're seeing these sealed judgments go on. And and hopefully a billion people have been raptured out. There's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of wondering. Well, then all of a sudden on the scene, there's 144,000 that we've already talked about before. And now here are these two witnesses. And these two witnesses are like two Old Testament saints put here in the present time. I think they're going to dress like them. I think they're going to talk like them. They're going to act like them. Preaching repentance. This idea of sackcloth again. Judgments. Look at the judgments that they have. Verse 5. You try to harm them. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours them. They can make the rain stop. Verse 6. They can have plagues. Verse 6. This is pretty impressive power that they have. They are empowered by the Lord, and they are going to use this testimony once again for the first half of the tribulation. It's an absolutely amazing thing. And when we take a look at this, oh, wow. It's pretty neat to see what it is. Now, who are these two witnesses? Oh, there's a lot of opinions on that. They could be just two people that the Lord raises up. We know that they're going to be men because the Greek here teaches that it's men. That's the pronouns that they are. So we know they're going to be two men. They could be two guys that the Lord just raises up at this time. Could be. But I think it's interesting in verses 5 and 6, the description of them makes it line up with other people. The first one that you see is Elijah. If you look at verse 5, fire proceeding from their mouths, Elijah would call fire down from heaven in the Old Testament. Also, you see the idea of shutting up the rain so that no rain falls. In verse 6, that's what Elijah did. He called a drought. What about the other guy? Well, as soon as you start seeing water being turned to blood and you see the earth with plagues, it makes you think about Moses, doesn't it? And you start thinking about Elijah and Moses. As your mind starts going to this, you stop and you think, okay, they were at the transfiguration with Jesus. So when Jesus went on the mountaintop and was transfigured, who are the two people that showed up? Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Now, some of you are going to say, hey, but James, there's a problem here. Moses died. Elijah was taken up in fiery chariot to heaven. So Elijah was taken out. He never tasted death. Moses did. A couple things about that. Moses' death is very, very interesting. When you read about Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses was buried by God himself. That's kind of fascinating. And then you read in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel 
and Satan battled for the body of Moses. Now, why would they be battling for the body of Moses? Some people think it's because uh, Satan wanted the body of Moses to almost set up a shrine to get the attention off the Lord because this was such a respected person. Some people say, well, it looks like God had more in store for Moses later on. If you remember what happened at the end of Moses' life, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. He was not because of his sin. And it looks like the Lord here is giving him another chance. Now, some people stop and say, but it says in the book of Hebrews 9, it's appointed for man to die once and then to face the judgment. That is true. That is a point that God is trying to make. But we have to remember there's other people in the Bible that died more than once. The greatest example is Lazarus. Tasted death, came back. The Lord is able to use this. This is his plan. He is God. He is sovereign. So some people come back and say, well, they think it's Moses, excuse me, Elijah and Enoch. Because Enoch is the other guy in the Old Testament that did not taste death. The problem with Enoch is we don't see any miracles like this associated. There's nothing in the Jewish uh, history or traditions that believes this. There seems to be prophecy pointing towards Elijah coming back. They also believe Moses was going to be coming back. And Enoch seems to carry a picture of the church being raptured out. If you go out and study Enoch, Enoch is a great picture of the rapture happening before the flood happens. So putting that all together, they could be just two guys that God raises up at this time. Maybe it is Enoch. But I think if you look at enough of the scriptures and you look at the detail, because there's a reason why in verses 5 and 6 God gave those details, it looks like it's Moses and Elijah. Would that not be pretty impressive? That all of a sudden, end times, Antichrist rising in power, and here's Moses and Elijah that's come back to preach the gospel and to preach truth. I think that would be an absolutely fascinating thing. I've always been fascinated by the two witnesses and what a neat picture they are. And we're going to get a little bit more into their uh, ministry here in a second. But any quick questions, comments about them? Yeah. What does a prophet actually know? What does a prophet actually know? Because there's no one here on a Wednesday night, and it's kind of fun. We can talk about it. I mean, that's... I know there's people out there who would... Yeah. They, they get into it too much. It's a little bit like trying to figure out the Antichrist. It's a little bit like trying to figure out this other thing. People take some very strong stands on this. For me, I just think it's fascinating. What would important to kind of know? I think in verses 5 and 6, if God is giving that much detail about what they're going to be doing... God wants us to know a little bit. I think there's a reason why in the transfiguration he told us about Moses and Elijah. There's a prophecy in the book of Malachi that says that Elijah will return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So to me, I spend a little bit more time on it because it's not just uh, conjecture. It's actually seeing other verses being fulfilled and some prophecies being fulfilled. But you're right. You know, what it comes down to that, Marcus, of what does it really matter? It doesn't. We're going to be up in heaven. But it seems to be some fulfilled prophecy in there, and it seems to be the Lord taking care of some other things. Why? I mean, I, if you're reading through the Bible, and I always tell people this, if you don't know anything about the Bible, and you truly start reading it in Genesis, you're going to get to Deuteronomy, and you're going to scratch your head and say, Moses, this is the greatest guy so far in the Bible, and the Lord's burying his body? That's kind of weird. And then you kind of forget about Moses. Then all of a sudden you get to Jude, 60 books later or whatever, and you're going to get to Jude and you're going to say, wait a second, why is Satan battling Michael for the body of Moses? And then you're going to get to the last book of the Bible and you're going to say, wow, that looks kind of interesting. You're going to study out Elijah and you're going to say, this guy was taken to heaven. And then you're going to get to Malachi and say, 
There's some prophecy here about uh, Elijah returning and that you're going to get to Revelation 11. So to me, there's enough of her scriptures that come together. It seems like the Lord is trying to connect some puzzle pieces here. But I do want to stress again, we don't know who they are. They could be just two people that God raises up. We don't know. We're not going to be here for it. It's not worth getting into an argument or a fight about. But it is sure fascinating to see how all the puzzle pieces line up and possibly be something. Anybody else got anything? Rachel. I don't think it's simultaneous. I think it's something that they're going to come on the scene. It may be simultaneous. The Lord is really... Yeah. We we do know that they minister for 42 months, 1,260 days. The Lord is able to do what he wants. He could have the rapture happen, and then boom, they appear on the scene right then and there. So that is quite possible. So I don't want to cut the Lord short on that. Anybody else have anything here for one? Yeah, Megan. I don't think the 144,000 will have power. If you go back and reread in Revelation 7 about the 144,000, um, they're protected divinely. They seem to be more of evangelists, where the two witnesses are more of the Old Testament prophets using signs and wonders uh, to get people's attention, and they seem to have more of that ministry. Yeah. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? All right, let's see what happens to them. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Please note in verse 7, they only die when they finish their testimony. That's so important. It's kind of like when you go back and study out Jesus in the Gospels when he says, no one takes my life from me. He goes, I lay down my life. You know, no one killed Christ. Christ gave his life up as a sacrifice. These two witnesses have a set beginning and end of their ministry. And when their testimony is finished... Then the Lord allows, in his sovereignty, the Antichrist to kill them. Now, you've got to remember, a thorn in the side these two guys will be. A thorn in the This Antichrist is, is gaining power politically, spiritually, financially, the Bible says. And so this guy is gaining power, and he's got these two guys he can't take care of. I, I think it starts simple. I think it starts with maybe trying to arrest them. Then some fire comes down from heaven. Then you send in some armed people, some fire comes. And then at this time, I think you step back and scratch your head. And then I think you try to do it a little discreetly behind the scenes. And I, this is just what I envision, my opinion, my opinion. I always say it three times. My opinion is the more the people try to harm them, the more the plagues get kicked up. I think it starts out simple with this idea of just almost I envision this street evangelism. And then it just grows. And it grows over three and a half years. And the Antichrist, with all his power, will not be able to stop them in any way whatsoever. I imagine board meetings behind the scenes. I imagine groups of people getting together, trying to figure out what to do with these guys. And they can't take them out. So they finally take them out, verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. They let the bodies lay there for a few days. You remember the reports, you remember the video clips of when we had men and women overseas there in the Middle East and some of them were killed, how their bodies were drugged through the streets, how their bodies were desecrated. I think these guys are going to be very similar. Why bury them? Let's have some fun with them. 
Let's put them up. Let's do it. So for three days, this is going to happen. The bodies are going to start to decompose. They'll probably be beaten. They'll probably be mutilated. And then verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. How can they see their dead bodies? Well, it'll probably be TV, satellite, movies, whatever. This is going to be middle of the day interruption news. These guys that have tormented the world for three and a half years, they will not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Dead prophets day. Because those two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So for three and a half days, this is what's going to go on here. And I, and I tell you, what a fascinating thing. So these guys for three years torment the world. In a good way. Repentance. God's grace. They're finally killed. Everybody will see it. Everybody will know it. The world will celebrate. And if you put together everything, and this, this is why it's so hard sometimes to do a study in Revelation, because you have to start putting all these puzzle pieces together. All this is happening right here. It looks like the abomination of desolation happens in the middle. It looks like these prophets are killed in the middle. It looks like the Antichrist has his climax right here in the middle. And this is a great three and a half days. Best we can figure, the Antichrist is now militarily won. He has financial power. He has economic power. He has spiritual power. The, three, the two witnesses are killed. And for about three days, it's just like he's got it all. I see him at this time going into the temple. I see him at this time desecrating and saying, I am God, worship me, because he's going to ride this victory But what happens in verse 11, now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. People ask me all the time, when we're in heaven, will we know what's going on down here on earth? And I don't believe biblically you can make a case that you will know. Because how can you have true joy and peace in heaven if you're worrying about what's down here on earth? I would like to see this though. This would be fun to see. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Oh my, that would be wonderful to see. And the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Looks like this earthquake affects Jerusalem. 7,000 killed. Verse 14, the second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. This really changes now. Because we get to the seventh trumpet, and then we get into the bold judgments. And you've heard me say this before. If we thought the seal trumpets, excuse me, the seal judgments were bad, the trumpet judgments make the seal judgments look like a walk in the park. If we thought the trumpet judgments were bad, wait till you get to the bold judgments. When this happens, when this middle part happens, this abomination of desolation, everything just starts to really start to go downhill. This is where Jesus said, Jews flee, run. And that's what's going to happen in Revelation 12. The Jews are divinely protected in the wilderness. The Antichrist turns on Israel. The Antichrist goes into full destruction mode. You know, we use this term hell on earth, and that's really what it starts to become. And these two witnesses ascending into heaven, it kind of starts this whole process here. God has basically said, I'm giving you three and a half years of chances of divine repentance. You're rejecting it. You're, in fact, celebrating the death of these people. What an amazing picture it's going to be. Where after three and a half days, they rise from the dead in front of everybody and ascend into heaven. 
What an amazing, amazing picture that will be. Any final questions, comments here about the two witnesses? They have such a tiny little part in Scripture. It really only goes from about verse 3 to verse 13. But such a key component they are in so many things. Any final questions, comments? Yeah, Renee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually, if you really study out that on verse 13, it looks like the rest of the people start to get it. And I believe what that is, is a tie-in. Because if verse 13 is talking about Jerusalem, a tenth of the city fell, and they gave glory to God of heaven. Because what you see happening now in Revelation 12, you see the Antichrist turn on Israel, and you see the Israel, the Jews, divinely protected in the wilderness. So it looks like, in, in verse 13, it's when Israel's eyes are finally starting to be opened, and they finally start to get this. What's really going on. And they realize the Antichrist was wrong. They realize the Antichrist is false. And they really do start to give glory to the God of heaven. So that seems to be the turning point for Israel right there. And starting to finally get what's going on. They've been delusional for the first three and a half years. But at this point their eyes start to be opened. Which is fulfilled prophecy again. That their eyes would be opened and they would see this. Anybody else have anything before I go on? Yeah, Megan. Mm-hmm. Right, they, they do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and also the book of Zechariah, that their eyes are blinded. They don't get it. But it also says as well that eventually their eyes will be opened. And they will get it and they will see and understand. And what we were talking about with Renee was asking there, it looks like this is where it starts to happen that they begin to see. Because jump ahead. We'll just go ahead here a little bit. Go to Revelation 12. Um, let's go to verse 13. This is where if we had all the time in the world, we could do the book in one thought. But we have to chop it up because of time. Take a look at Revelation 12, verse 13. Now, when the dragon, that's Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth, that's Israel, to the male child, that's Jesus. We'll get into this next week. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Okay, now that's funky wording there. Time, times, and half a time. Time represents one in the Bible. Times would represent two and a half a time. So you have one plus two plus a half. That's three and a half. That's this right here. Israel divinely protected for the last three and a half years. So their eyes seem to be open. They seem to realize the Antichrist was wrong. They seem to realize that Jesus was truly the Messiah and Savior. And so now they are divinely taken into the wilderness, verse 14, and protected. Think about that. The world is falling apart, but Israel is divinely protected during the last three and a half years. Verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who keep the commandment of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan realizes, I can't touch the Jews. I can't. They're protected. I'm going to let them go for this last three and a half years. And look, they are nourished. Verse 14. The world is going to be struggling for food and water. 
And Israel is divinely protected. So who does Satan turn his attention towards? Verse 17, looks like he turns his attention towards the believers in Jesus Christ that have gotten saved, the Gentiles that have gotten saved after the rapture has happened. So Israel's eyes are open. They start to realize the Antichrist is not their Messiah, not their Savior. They realize Jesus is. That's fulfilled prophecy from Romans 9, 10, 11, and Zechariah. And so now they're divinely protected for three and a half years in the wilderness. Satan goes after them to destroy them. He can't destroy them since they're protected. So then he turns his attention towards the rest of the believers that are on this earth that got saved afterwards. So their eyes will be open. They will see the Antichrist was not their true Savior and that Jesus Christ truly is. Pretty cool thing going on there. Yeah. They went to hell. And they went to hell because they chose to reject Jesus. Now, when it says that blindness has happened in part to Israel, and I encourage you to go read Romans 9, 10, and 11, please don't take that as saying these people wanted to get saved and God would not allow it. What God is saying is they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ. They chose to reject the gospel. That's what we're studying in the book of Acts. And so since they chose to reject the gospel, blindness came upon them. So it's not that the Lord is keeping them from salvation because Jews can still get saved now. Like I said, we have Ephraim come out here this last fall. He's a Jew that got saved. Amen. He's a Messianic Jew. He's over there in Israel right now pastoring a church, spreading the gospel. But what they're saying is as a whole, as the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel being such a godly nation does not care. They're blind to it. And and it's such a fascinating concept that Israel, who has such an openness about God, really cares nothing about God. I mean, when you go read up on Israel's military, their, uh, their military code words are all Old Testament Bible war heroes. Uh, they, they openly acknowledge the idea of a God, but they don't serve and worship Him. You know, we talked about how some of them want a temple, but the most of them just don't care. They're blind. They can still be saved, but they're blind. And so eventually what happens is their eyes are fully open. They fully see what's happening. And that's what we're talking about here in Revelation 11 and Revelation 12. So individuals still can get saved. But as a nation, as a whole, their eyes are blind. And that will finally become open here in the book of Revelation. Anybody else have anything here about this? Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. No, I, but I, I don't think that that's what it's supposed to be. If, if we know the reality of heaven and hell, that should change how we live. I mean, it should change our interactions. It should change how we talk to people. Uh, you know, this is you know, part of going through the book of Revelation as we start to see this stuff. And if we believe this stuff is real, this should change how we live. I mean, just like with anything, you know, we just got done celebrating Christmas. If we really do believe the Christmas story, we as believers, more than anybody, should stop and realize uh, this doesn't have anything to do with materialism. It doesn't have anything to do with what the world throws at you. It has to deal with Jesus Christ. Just in a few months, when we get to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we should stop and say, this has nothing to do with what the world thinks of as Easter. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It changes how we think and believe. So therefore, if I really believe this, when I go home tonight and Dawn's in a really bad mood, I should stop and say, that bad mood should not affect me because I'm more spiritual than she is because I care about eternity. But the problem, yeah, she's not here tonight. <laughs> we, got a, we got a sick one and she doesn't listen to the podcast. But, but the problem is we lose this focus and we allow coworkers and bosses and, and worldly things and spouses and kids to control our joy when really it's all about Jesus Christ and we did it on the cross. And when we get that, it changes everything. Changes it. Go with me real quick to uh, Romans 9. I want to I want to just see Paul's heart. Because I think Paul's heart is a little bit here of what Megan's talking about. We'll have to get into the seventh trumpet next week. But, um, yeah, take a look here at Romans 9, starting verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. That's what we're talking about. Sorrow and grief. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying right there, he goes, I wish I could be separated from Jesus and go to hell if it meant that the Jews could be saved. Verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. See, Paul is saying right there, he goes, these Jews should get it. They've seen the glory. They got the covenant. They got the law. They got to be the priesthood. They got all of it. But they don't. They don't get it. And he goes, I would give up my salvation for them. Now jump ahead to Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He goes, I want them to be saved. But they're not. Blindness has happened to them. And that's what he's trying to say is my heart is for this. My heart is for them to know about it. But the problem is, they don't want to know about it. So since they don't want it, they're not going to have it. Individuals can still get saved. But as a nation, the Israel has been blinded and they turned their eyes away from the Lord. So, Paul has that heart as well too. And what a heart that is. To say, my heart's desire is for them to be saved. My heart's desire is to say, I care so much about them, I would give up my salvation. Man, that's, that's a powerful statement. I love the Lord. I love people, but I have never prayed, Lord, take my salvation. Give it to someone else. And Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's a great three chapters through the Spirit, and I encourage you to read it, where Paul says, God loves them, God wants them, I want them, but the problem is they're blinded right now because they've consistently and constantly rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. But there will be a time where that blindness shall be lifted, And amen when that happens. But for right now, they're not seeking it. And eventually they will see it. And that's what's happening in Revelation 11 and Revelation 12. Anybody else have anything here about this before we close up? Okay. Alrighty. Hey, let's pray and we'll let you guys go here then. Would you guys stand with me, please? Lord, as we come to you now, um, we know the truth. Help us not to just to mark it, underline it, memorize it, but to live it and always say and do. 
Lord, help us to have that heart and passion for our heart to break for those that don't know you. Lord, that we would be able to let go of everything on this earth that's bringing us down and focus on eternity. Eternity. And as we live our lives down here, that we'd realize our joy and our strength is in you, not in other people. Thank you, Lord, for your love, grace, and mercy. Um, Thank you for Israel's eyes eventually being opened. We love them as you love them. And we thank you, Lord. In your name we pray this. Amen. Hey, be safe as you travel home. Stay warm out there, and we'll see you guys next week then.